0: PHONE <rings>
1: Getting tangled up, <laughs> getting to be, my wires tangled up. Uh, hello, Phil, come and bienvenue, it's Amish Inquisition time yet again, episode 162 on Sunday the 6th of December. I'm Amish Phil. I'm Amish Ben.
2: And I'm Amish Matt.
1: And tonight we've got author and researcher Mark Anthony Wyatt, via the magic of iPhones. <laughs> how are we doing, Mark? Hi Phil. Hiya. Hi Matt. Hi Ben. Hi. Hey. We had, a bit of, we had some technical issues <laughs> <laughs> before we got started. You. Tell you what, I'm, I'm dead impressed, though. I mean, the video and the audio quality is better than Amish Matt's. <laughs> I know. And it's just, <laughs> and and it's it's just got, so got a book, do not it? It's got a brand-new laptop. <laughs> so thanks for coming, Mark. It's nice to meet you, finally. We've been chatting on Insta, haven't we? We
3: have. My, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
1: No trouble. I was... Um, we were just discussing... Well... Discussing what we might be discussing, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I thought I thought it'd be nice to talk a bit about Cornwall, to be honest, because you know okay. you have you have some expertise in this area. Being a,
3: I yeah, I believe I can say that without um yeah exaggerating. I, I believe so. Yeah, pretty much.
1: Yeah, because well, you've written two two books about the different sort of strange going ons. Uh, the Spirit of Cornwall, Ooh, yes. Volume One yeah. and Two, and uh, well, I mean for people because we have uh, most of the people listening are in the states or in the Canada and not in the UK. So for those people, Cornwall's like this southwestern tip, isn't it? Like that foot that pr- yes, protrudes yeah. into the Atlantic. Yeah. Um so tell us a bit about Cornwall and what what's so special about it? What what it what sort of made you wanna write mm-hmm. two books about the place?
3: Okay. I'll uh, try and keep to keep it short sure and sweet. <laughs> um, yeah I how did I get involved? Well my, my family, part of my father's family were sort of Cornish-related, um, and he always loved the place, and he, he eventually took us down there when I was a teenager. And the place just you, – you, I mean, I, I don't know if you know St. Ives, around the, the very far west. It's a beautiful town. Um, and it's just like for anybody. I mean, not – what. Once you see it for the first time, especially if you approach it by the little train on the coast, it's just, it's embedded in you for life, you know? Um, and as I say, family down there as well. So it just became second home to me really. And over the years, I've sort of got sort of learned more and more about it. And obviously I've always been interested in the supernatural, paranormal, whatever you want to label it. Um, and, It sort of goes hand in glove with Cornwall to, to anybody who doesn't know Cornwall. If it's really, you know, if if you come to America and you talk about Cornwall, a lot of people haven't got a clue. I mean, fair enough, you know, I mean, we haven't got a clue about places over here sometimes. Um, But it is, some people would refer to it as parts of England. Well, politically, yeah, it is obviously. Um, But, so sort of traditionally and originally, it was its separate own separate country. Wow. Um, but it is, you know, a lot of Celtic sort of blood there. Um, connections to the Irish and the Scots and the the Bretons just across in France on the far western tip of France. Yeah. Um, so it's a very sort of distinctive place. Um, it's, is it's, not not England, you know. And and I say that's an Englishman, it's not it's not England. Um although it's you know, the population is constantly changing all the time. And so many of the people who actually live in Cornwall aren't really you know, they don't go back many generations there's, there's a hardcore that do. But if you trace them back, you know, they they came in from other places too. We all did. We're we're all immigrants. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. All of us, you know, I don't, I don't like this flag waving really too much. I mean, a bit of fun sometimes, but we're, we're all immigrants. We all come from somewhere else. So, um, but yeah, be proud, be proud of where you come from. That's fine. Yeah.
1: There's uh, something very, it's always sort of intrigued me with Cornwall that there is sort of this, like a cultural demarcation and it's yeah, like it's like, this, the river. Yeah. like this question of identity it's like, if I think about myself and my own identity, I don't really, although I am a Lancastrian, because I'm born and raised yeah. and live in Lancashire, it's not like right. at the forefront of my mind if someone asks you about your yeah. identity, but I get the impression that with Cornwall, yeah. it's it very much is the opposite oh, of that. definitely,
3: they, yeah, they see themselves as, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, I just, the people I've met who were born there, and that, you know, and it varies. It depends who you speak to, but most of them would see themselves as Cornish first, British second, and not English. Not English. Um, oh. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, I mean, most people I know. If you know, I, I've, I lived there for twenty years, and you know, they they might follow the English cricket team or the English. They definitely follow the English rugby team, which is quite ironic, really. <laughs> um, although occasionally they do have three or four. It has happened in recent years. They've had three or four Cornish guys in the England rugby team. Um, so, yeah, they, they don't tend to see themselves as English, although strangely enough, they're my own family. That <laughs> They're probably more, in some respects, they're more British than I am because they, they're they very, you know, they like the Royals and they, they like to go up to London and have a you know, trip up to London, whereas I lived quite near London. And London... You know, I haven't really got much of an affection for it, really. I spent a lot of time in London, and I'm not that keen on it, you know. But, um, yeah, I in my youth, I was in London a lot, sort of seeing bands and watching football matches. Yeah. But I never really felt at home there. So I sort of feel I feel at home in Surrey, because it's rural,
1: and you've got the hills and the, you know, forests and woods and whatever. Um. Do you think that's because of, is that maybe because of the size of the place? Because there's so many, London's yeah, such a I'm not, massive I'm place.
3: Yeah, I'm not big on crowds, really. I don't really, uh, yeah, I mean, well, my ex, my only experiences of London were always um, sort of popping up there for the evening from Guildford. It's like an hour. Yeah. Um, well, when I when I was younger, we used to, you could do this in those days, but we, we would go up to see a band and, That was always a struggle because you had to sort of get right across London and it was, you know, in those days anyway, it it seemed that they drove like idiots, you know. Um, I can remember being at Shepherd's Bush. I'm digressing now. I was at Shepherd's Bush um, where the TV, the BBC were at one time anyway. And it's like a huge roundabout there. And I was probably 18 or 19 and I was driving up there for the first time and there was about eight lanes and I had to be in the outside lane closest to the middle, I think. And I was in the number one or two. And somebody said, no, 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 you've got to go right. You've got to go right. And I'm like, well, I can't. It's like 10 taxis in my way. And, and he said, I'll oh, just put your foot down, shut your eyes, we'll be fine. <laughs> and more or less did that. And everyone beats you, but like everyone's doing it. You have to drive like an idiot. So, um, yeah, I was never very keen on driving up there. But then coming home... I used to have an old Rover, and um, it was very, very fast. And we used to get home back to Guildford in, like, the, I don't know if you know the A3. Not particularly. It's, uh, like, it's quite a fast road. It goes from London to Portsmouth via Guildford.
0: Yeah.
3: And And uh, we used to fly down it, literally fly down it, you know. So we, we would be back in, like, 20, 25 minutes or something. So <laughs> but you can't do that now.
1: No, it's very naughty. It it Policemen watching. We don't do that anymore.
3: No, I haven't done it ever.
1: No, I, I take it this was when you were a younger man.
3: Oh, much younger. Because we're, we're,
1: yeah. we're only I, week, we're only saying last week. We're only saying last week that we're only saying last week that uh, a lot of us had a tendency to drive a bit silly under the age of twenty-five.
3: Oh, definitely, <laughs> definitely. I, I wonder sometimes if maybe we shouldn't have licenses until well 23 24 maybe yeah it probably depends on the person though doesn't it you know yeah i mean i mean james hunt i don't do you remember james hunt the world racing champion yep yeah. yeah he he took his driving test five times and failed <laughs> 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 yeah true true story yeah yeah um, yeah Anyway, sorry, I've digressed. You were asking about
1: Cornwall. We ended up on James. Yeah, Cornwall. <laughs> it seems to be that it's, um, you know, a lot of writers have this affinity with Cornwall. I remember reading once somewhere that, that um, possibly Tolkien had based the Shire on Cornwall. The Shire well, from really Lord, Lord of the Rings. Did he? No. Uh, <laughs> I, read I had it no somewhere. idea about that. I read it somewhere. It might have been nonsense. <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, what is it? Is it because it's just so dramatic? The landscape um, is not...
3: So... I, I, it, it's a strange thing. It's like uh, the, the area I really, really love in Cornwall. I mean, I love, I like it all, but my favourite area is West Penwith. Uh, That's um, right down the far west. So you've got, like, the Land's End bit up to just past St Ives. And it's, it's very... You've got a bit of everything there. You've got wonderful beaches, of course, but you've got these rugged cliffs you've got granite absolutely everywhere you know you've got these massive hills um, sort of bare hills of just huge lumps of granite all over them um, which obviously you've got the other end of Cornwall as well in Bodmin mm. around, around that area um, but yeah it's just it, it seems to it just has an atmosphere which is which you, you almost you know like once you cross that river and you get in there it's especially if you're crossing through Bodmin Moor. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you do it in the winter on a, on a sort of really miserable sort of day, you get a better glimpse of what it's really like.
0: Mm.
3: I mean, I, I used to like, well, I still do, if I get a chance when I'm there, um, just going clambering around on, uh, there's a couple of hills I really like, uh, Rosewall, which is just outside St. Ives, and also Trend Crom. they're both there. And you can get up on the top there and you can, climb around on these massive lumps of granite and you can see both sides of a peninsula um, well according depending on the weather mm. sometimes you can't see anything um and there's this there's very strange feeling up there and it's if you trace it back and if you look at what used to go on up there you know it's almost like it's been imprinted on the stone somehow because you've got that feeling of otherworldliness, I can't describe it any other way, it's just yeah. really quite creepy up there.
1: I was thinking, um, you know, I was thinking, is is there like maybe some certain places have like, a, like a, an imprint of mythos that yeah. surrounds them? I remember going to yeah. Tintagel Castle when I was a kid,
4: uh-huh, um, yeah. which
1: is related to the Arthurian legend and myth. Yes, and, yeah. All right, I was a small boy, but you get this feeling of like wonderment of awe because of the because of the myth that surrounds the place. Yeah, and I think a lot of people get it with Glastonbury as well, just over the border in Somerset, don't they? I wonder if that's something to do with
3: it. Yeah, I'd never been to Glastonbury until like about two or three years ago, and I'd heard so much about it, and it was an amazing place. I mean. Just a wonderful play. I mean, just so strange. We, we had a very strange, very strange experience there, actually. Um, not sure I should mention it on here, but um, we sort of he found did. ourselves. It, I, 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 if I change, I'll give you a quick rundown of what happened. It's very odd, um, but I'm not going to give any names. But basically, not, I met a guy online, sort of like chatting about all this sort of stuff, you know. Um, and he, he was a fascinating guy, very, very knowledgeable. And he said that if you're ever in town, just get in touch and um, we we can, you know, we we'll meet for coffee and have a chat. And anyway, so we did. And we, we found this little calf. And he had a, I don't know, I've got to be careful what I say, really. but he had, he, had lady, he had a lady with him. And she was extremely knowledgeable as well. I mean, really knowledgeable. She was very well read, you know, knew everything about the place. Um, but we arranged to meet up in this pub later, and it was like this really ancient pub. I wish I could remember the name, but it's fantastic stonework. And I mean, like seriously old pub with amazing windows and everything. So we get in there and I, I can't remember the exact sequence of events, but she starts having an argument with these people at the bar uh, she was a bit peculiar, to say the least, but she started having this argument. And it got more and more heated. And then the guy that was with us, who's her boyfriend, I suppose, well, he was, he basically, and he wasn't the biggest guy, he was trying to sort of defend her, not physically. I mean, these these were really big guys, but they weren't being violent. They were just having this severe argument. And we were sort of stuck in the middle of this, and we'd only just met them, <laughs> but it, to to them, they probably thought we were like old friends, and you know, and, and we we thought we were going to get dragged into this thing, you know. So that that was not a good experience. <laughs> I, I haven't even given you half of it, but it was like <laughs> a very odd, very odd experience. So um, it sort of put me off the place a bit. Um, did you go uh, on the tour, yeah, I did. Yeah, that that was. In, very steep-sided. I didn't expect it, is, it to yeah. be so steep. Yeah, yeah, it's quite so a track.
0: <laughs> yeah,
3: and it was like there's like a little walkway through the, the building at the top, isn't it? Mm. And it was quite cold up there, and uh, you know, yeah, fascinating views up there. Oh, it's nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have you looked into the history of Glastonbury? Not
5: nah. too much. feels feels your man for history. I think um, <laughs> I read it. I oh, read well. it.
1: I read a book last year called The Avalonians, and it was yeah. it was based. Uh, it was sort of giving the history of the resurgence that it had in the um, I think late nineteenth century, and that the characters who were behind that and establishing the festival yeah. and whatnot. It's very interesting. A lot of sort of occult, esoteric links with Glastonbury, because really you've, got, yeah. you've got you've got Glastonbury Abbey and the. Joseph of yeah. Arimathea myth, and you've got the Arthurian Yeah, I, I, I
3: like the myth because it's connected to Cornwall as well. Um, I've looked into that a bit. I'm a bit rusty on it at the moment, but um, if, you, if you look at, you know, Cornish place names and um, just sort of local legends from places that weren't connected, you know, like they are nowadays, everyone can talk to anyone, but in those days they weren't really connected, but they have the same basic story that, Jesus as a boy visited Cornwall mm-hmm. with his uncle that's what you're talking about isn't it who was Joseph of Arimathea mm. um, and and people like to write that off and say oh it's sort of rubbish but it's like it's you know these stories have been handed down from generation to generation even in recent years elderly people in Cornwall have told people who I know well in fact when, I'll get on to that in a minute but I know a guy who was really really um brilliant researcher and writer in Cornwall. Uh, he died in his 80s, like, a couple of years ago. He was, like, my mentor in some ways, you know. Um, he met elderly people who told him that their parents had told them that Jesus had been to their town, you know. And there's quite a few, or village, there's quite a few places like that in Cornwall. Um, there's, I'm trying to think of a name of it, on the Fowl estuary, the F-A-L estuary, there's a very sort of pretty little church right on the banks. Um, St. Just, I think. I might have got that wrong. Saint Just, Yeah, St. Just in Roseland, I think it is. Right. Um, it's a part of Cornwall I'm not really familiar with. It's the other end, really, the other side, really. Um, but he was supposed to have landed there, and the rock that he trod on when he got out of the boat is supposedly... Well, they've swapped it now, and they've taken it off to some museum, so to say. Um, but the thing is, I don't know if you know about the crosses, the, the the Christian crosses, the old ones in Cornwall. You won't see them anywhere else in the world, because if you look at them carefully, it's not when it's got Jesus on the cross, but it's not the thirty-something Jesus that we are we're sort of used to. Mm. It's a boy. It's the boy Jesus, right. and I and I say that as somebody who's not really. I'm not really religious or anything, but I'm just fascinated by that connection. And it's it's all connected to the tin mines because obviously they were supposedly his uncle was supposed to have been a decurion, uh, mm-hmm. so a wealthy man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like a, a business leader. Yeah, and he was working with the Romans. Um, and basically, yeah, he was doing business in Cornwall and also up in Glastonbury, up towards Glastonbury. Mm. Um, so, yeah, they, they, if, you, if you look around Cornwall, you see a lot of these crosses and the old churches with, like, the little boy on the cross. Not, I, I mean, I think it's it's just a symbol, you know, they're not saying he was killed as a boy, no, you think, no, but, no. but you'll see those in, um, actually, I was wrong, You're, I think you'll see them in Br- Brittany as well. Oh. And there are, there are legends that he visited Brittany, which would make sense hmm. yeah. um, because there are links. If you go back to, like, I don't know, my dates are rusty, but say uh, 400, 500, 600, sort of the Arthurian sort of era, and it, there were lots of battles because the, the original Brits I always get confused by this, but the original Brits were being pushed out of the, the better farmland in the Southeast and more central and whatever. And there were over a period of like, I don't know, a couple of hundred years or more. Those tribes were pushed further and further West. Yeah, And that's how we ended up in Wales and Cornwall. They're the same tribe. They're like cousins. Um, and, it, and it ha- but it happened over a long period of time, and they were gradually pushed back into the areas where the farming wasn't so good, and um, so he ended up being fishermen and miners and so on. Um, I've lost my dr- lost my track, <laughs> but <laughs> well, that's what happens. and we'll push. Oh yes, yeah. so basically, at one point, I'm not quite sure of history on this, but they they were sort of routed in a battle. It was probably around Tintagel that you mentioned, because there's um, Slaughter Bridge. Is there just just outside uh, near Camelford? Um, Camelford was supposedly Camelot. That's one of the stories. And there's there's talk of these uh, rebels, these chief uh, tribal people who had been fighting, who was basically sort of doing a Dunkirk, but like earlier, <laughs> they they were sort of leaving from Cornwall. Um, to get, you know, or from probably more likely from Devon or whatever. And they were going over to um, France, as we know it, which was, what, Gaul, yeah. And that became like Little Britain, almost, you know, uh, Breton, hence Brittany. So, again, they're cousins as well. Yeah. So they, they are. Um, and, and there's so there's so many sort of odd little links with all that. Um, even in my personal life you know um, just just weird just weird things like um, there, there was a. I don't know if this means anything but some years ago I was looking at some stuff about Brittany uh, and you know the French play this game with uh, bulls or something like that yeah. where they sort of like a pub game um, they sort of throw this ball thing into down a, I don't know down a pitch whatever it is um, like tossing stones or something. And I was looking at these old guys who were playing it, and I was sort of quite amazed, really, that they looked like my own father and my granddad. Like almost, you know, they could pass as brothers sort of thing, you know. They had a certain look about them. You know, because I, I I'm quite good at spotting that in people. I, and the Cornish have a certain look, some of them. And, and I'm actually, I actually—I don't know why, but, I, I mean, it's not always accurate. But, um, I mean, i would give you an example of that. I was watching a US cop show years ago. It was what, um, one of the really good ones that followed Hill Street. Um, I can't remember what it was now. It followed Hill Street. Um, same writer, Mark Frost, I think. And there was a guy on there, the main star, and he was a ginger guy. And there was just something about it. I didn't know who he was, but I sort of recognised his face as being Cornish. I just knew that he had some Cornish relation, connection. And when the credits came up at the end, I had no idea who he was. He had a Cornish surname. So there is something in it you can sort of – and I know it sounds crazy – but I heard this when I was a kid as well from a bloke who said that he could spot somebody who came from Coventry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, can you believe it? Seriously, this was back in the 60s, and he had, like, a very high success rate as well. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose in the old days, people were more set in their areas, you see.
1: Yeah, we're much more mobile now, go- aren't we? Hey, I'll tell so, you what, we're much more mobile now but I think we yeah. we, we don't realise often just how going back to the sort of Jesus coming to Cornwall how yeah. mobile people were back then um, cause, I mean, Oh it's
3: amazing, yeah, we, we think of them as being in the dark ages or whatever, they, they weren't they, they had amazing culture and bef- before the Romans came they had an amazing culture and the Romans just crushed them, you know, and the Normans did the same, the Normans did the yeah. same They uh, and I've I've got French DNA, so um, <laughs> supposedly my my surname came over with French, I believe. Right. So, which could tie into a Breton thing, maybe. I don't know.
1: We know from talking to um, Eric Klein about the Bronze Age, you know, eleven seventy seven BC, that the, mm. you know tin from the UK was being traded with lapis oh, that's right. lapis, I, lapis I lazuli from was, from Afghanistan. Yeah. You know, it, it yeah. was, there was a real it, massive trading network across the Mediterranean. Yeah. They, so- they
3: walked, what they did, they took the tin, well, as I think your your man said, he said they had more local places that they, they didn't have to go to Cornwall all the time, so they had other places yeah. who had it. Um, but I know that – because I, I did a lot of research in my book on this. It's all a bit rusty now. I tend to forget things after a while, but <laughs> just little bit stick, you know. It's like a bit of mud sticks. And, mm. um, but they used to travel to Marseille around that area from, from the Middle East up to Marseille. Then they would go across Europe. They would literally, like, walk or ride, whatever, um, up to the north coast of, well, Brittany – and then they'd go from Brittany over to Cornwall.
0: Mm.
3: And then from Cornwall to Glastonbury or whatever, you know. So, um, yeah, the, the tin, I mean, there, there were legends. Now, that's the other thing. See, Cornwall's got these links with the Middle East, which comes from the tin thing. But you've got, um, for example, saffron cake. I don't know if you've ever tried saffron cake. It's like a Cornish delicacy. It's, beautiful. it's a beautiful cake. Um, so it's like a sort of yellowy type, well, saffron. <laughs> um, and that is quite common in Palestine. And it's also common in Cornwall, but it's not common in England, really. Right. Um, so there are these little links all the time. Um, and there are legends of Jews working in the mines in Cornwall. And that's what the knockers, you know, the knockers legend comes out of these miners who they they think it was, um, the, these little creatures were like the ghosts of these old Jews. Well, that's, that was one of the um, sort of bits of folklore that sort of survived, you know. Um, and if you think about, you know, about, we've got to be careful what to say, but if you if you think about the way they were described, they described these characters these knockers, and I'm not going to say it, but like facially um yeah there was a way there was a way that they they looked a certain way, which you could say was the same as these guys from the middle east right. So, uh, yeah. I'm I'm
1: not familiar with the the knockers. Oh, I've not heard of that. Well, I'm familiar with some, but I think we're talking about different ones.
3: So so the knockers are these um, creatures that lived in, or supposedly might still do, you know, they lived in the mines and they haunted the mines, if you like. And the miners, I mean, this goes back thousands of years. Wow, The miners would hear like a tapping sound, and that they would take that as a warning um, that there was danger imminent. So uh, it depended. I mean, some of these knockers were seen as good knockers that uh, helped you, and others were not. Yeah, I know the whole, the whole thing with knockers, <laughs> you know. knockers. There are, there are good <laughs> knockers and bad knockers. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, but I mean, the knocker thing, I mean, you, you were talking about uh, Tolkien earlier. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Tolkien. You know, he got, his, he got his ideas from things like the knockers. You know, that would have been part of it for his little yeah. creatures. Mm. But anyway, they, they they were like, I. it depends on it who was telling the story, but sometimes they were the ghosts of these old Jews that worked in the mines. Sometimes they were the ghosts of miners that had died in pit disasters in previous centuries or whatever. And they were trying to help the, the modern-day miners, trying to save them from disaster if, if a mine was going to be flooded or pit prop was going to go down. Um, you know, the knocking could have been just the prop slipping, you know, um, or just the odd rock falling. But they, they genuinely believed that there were these creatures that stayed just out of sight in the mines. But those legends are common in North America too. Um, And they actually, the Cornish miners, they emigrated all over the world and they they took their culture with them, they took their architecture with them, they took their food with them. And you can go to Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Mexico, Chile, um, parts of North America, which I've been to. there's, There's at least six Cornish towns here in North America. Where, where they fly the Cornish flag I know it's incredible I mean I, I've been to two of them and uh, it, it was fascinating really fascinating but they, they turned the knockers into Tommy knockers oh, yeah. which is where Stephen King got his mm. you know yeah. Um, yeah and they they were Cornish miners that literally took their customs with them um, so yeah, I mean, I, I find all that fascinating. It's like the—I
1: I wouldn't even know what the Cornish flag looked like. What's really? It, no, I, is it now black? I don't know. I it might.
3: is. It's black with a white cross, which is the. Yeah. It's to—I uh, probably got this wrong. I shouldn't know. it's, it's to represent the the uh, the tin? Oh. It's something to do with the actual tin. Right. Um, but yeah, oh yeah, you when you're in Cornwall, you can't escape it. You yeah, will have so, seen
1: it, yeah. i probably yeah, know definitely. it if I saw
3: it. It's yeah. quite a cool flag, really.
5: Yeah,
3: um, They they have their big day in March, um, St. Piran's Day. I think, I might be wrong, I think it's the 17th. I'm not sure, I think it's the 17th. Um, yeah, I mean, all over Cornwall, it's, it's really big.
1: How do they celebrate um, that? Is there something sort of unique to Cornwall that they do?
3: Um, well, they celebrate on the day with just, like... I mean, well, I lived in Bude for a while, which is sort of on the, more or less on the border. It's a few miles away from the border with Devon. And they they celebrate with just um, like a a walk on the sand and like five miles, whatever, um, and across the cliffs. And they've all got, you know, some of them have got kilts on. They've got the Cornish tartan. Right. Which I'm I'm not a fan of that. I think that's... um, (sighs) I don't it? It doesn't go back that long, let's just uh, put it like that. It's like a, a more recent addition to it, but they've got their own clan um colours. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah, but what else do we do? They've got their own customs, their own special days. Uh, you've got in Padstow, you've got the Obios which is hobby horse <laughs> to us English. Um, which is when they have this I suppose you might call it a carnival, it's like but it goes on all day and they have this repetitive um sort of music played on uh, I probably got this wrong, accordion like instrument. Um and it's just the same tune basically, played over and over and over all day. But it's if you like that sort of repetitive ravey type music, you know, I mean I'm saying this as an old guy now but i actually quite like that i like repetitive i used to like the dance music like i never bought it i mean you wouldn't buy it but i used to listen to it in the car and it's similar to that it's like you know that same riff over and over played in various ways and then and it's like on a loop like a permanent loop and it it is like a psychological thing it's sort of like it's working on different levels and I think that's what it's all about. They're, they're sort of winding everyone up in, in a sort of celebratory sort of way, wow. and they get they take it so seriously. Um, so yeah, that vast pad stove, and there's others. There's, um, oh, I'm trying to think of a name of the place. Um, Helston, the Helston Floral Dance, and and there's various ceremonies all all over Cornwall. that – sort of celebrate their unique Cornishness, you know.
1: I just, I'm thinking of, like, the Wicker Man now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is there, is there any yeah. sort of pagan, like, um, background to any of these?
3: Oh, definitely,
1: definitely, yeah. I mean, they they were... In
3: fact, we were talking to someone the other day about all this, actually. Um, I wish I could remember who it was. But, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the Christian saints arrived in Cornwall from mostly from Ireland and France and they basically converted or, you know, over a period of a couple of hundred years or more probably they converted the locals from their sort of pay, pagan ways I suppose um, but, you know, they, they were there long before the Christians arrived and they're still there and I think of all the regions in Britain well, we say England anyway they are the most sort of in touch with their past. You know, they they were never truly subjugated. Like, the rest of us all got sort of anglicised in various ways. I mean, like, you're, you're up in the north. You had, uh, what did you have? You had the Danes coming down. I don't know. Did they get into Lancashire and that area?
5: Not sure, yeah. They found the... Queerdale Horde? Queerdale, am I pronouncing that right? Oh, um, right, Cornwall? yeah, yeah. yeah. Queerdale, yeah. Yeah. I
1: yeah. suppose it's... Uh, so said, it's uh, sort sorry, of. Uh, I guess it's maybe a function of the ge- geography of Cornwall, because it's such hmm. an isolated peninsula that, that maybe yeah. insulated them to a degree.
3: Yeah, they they had... Um, so, it's, it, once you start digging into it, I've read quite a few books sort of written by people who are... I. I well, Cornish nationalists, I don't think they call themselves that, but they're very, very uh, into the, you know, because we we grow up learning a very anglicised version of events for everything, as you know. And, like, you know, history is written by the winners sort of thing. But once you start digging into what really went on and some of the stories that I've heard, I mean, for example, Exeter in Devon, which for anyone listening outside of Britain, England, um, it's it, it's in, it, it's the bordering county, if you like. But in the, in those days, it would have been part of. I think it was called Dum Dumnonia. I'm not not probably not can pronounce that correctly. But um, so all the Cornish tribes were down there, and these other tribes that were coming in, which we mentioned earlier, they they were constantly at war with these people, trying to, and they were losing ground all the time, and eventually they ended up. Um, to the west of the Tamar River, but in Exeter, which is just the other side of that river, they had um, they were they were doing some building back in the seventies, I think it was in the nineteen seventies, and they had to stop work for a while because they found a huge mass grave line. and they I think they sort of covered it up and sort of said, oh, it was you know the Black Death or something. Wow. And I, I don't know what happened in the end there, but, um, but in this book they were saying it was very likely to have been like um, massacres because this is what these tribes were doing to each other, you know. It was, and they were trying to kill them off. And I'm trying to think of his name. Is it Red? I might have got that wrong. Ethelred. Yeah, yeah heard um, it, really. he, he was like a real ethnic cleanser, you know. And uh, I mean, like the, the whole thing with history is it's not there's, it's never really clear cut like there's A and there's B it's always sort of shades of grey you know it's like it, they, the, the people that the I don't know what he would have called himself in those days uh, uh, you know Ethelred whatever um, the people they were attacking were a mixture of sort of Romano British stroke Cornish you know the original Brits that were pushed west, but he was trying to wipe them out. They, they thought they were like, I mean, he actually, there are there writings that survived, but he said they were like, I'm sort of paraphrasing, like filthy scum of the earth, you know, little better than animals, you know, this sort of thing. And that, that way of thinking has always been in our upper classes, you know. Yeah. They've always had that horrible sort of, uh, you know, holier than thou sort of attitudes to other people like the Irish, you know.
1: Yeah, content. And they,
3: they, treated, they treated the Cornish just like the Irish. I mean, the Cornish were just as badly treated. But, of course, you know, we don't, you know... The, the victors right, the, you know, the history, don't they? So we, yeah. we, we get a very sort of sanitised version of what happened. But, but they were hanging vicars. I mean, like the, the prayer book rebellion, that was... I'm trying to think, there were, two, there were two Cornish uprisings. And when you look at English history books, they sort of tie it into other stuff. And they say, oh, it's all about taxation, you know. Mm. And But that was only like a tiny part of it. It was, they were trying to subdue the Cornish and they were trying to change, because if I got my history right, Henry VIII, as we all know, he, he ditched Rome and he, you know, pr- pr- made his own church, sort of the Church of England, and the Cornish didn't want that. They, they'd sort of got settled into the old religion, which was like the Catholic faith. And they had all this um, sort of... They had these sort of ancient churches then with all this old, um, you know, nice nice windows and ob- objects around the church, which had always been there, you know. And the the English came down... And basically, they, they wanted them to adopt this new way of um, new, new religion. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. And these soldiers would come down and basically go into these Cornish churches and just completely destroy them. And the word got around that this was going on. And one of these guys that came down and started going into a church and destroying it. They basically hacked him to death. And then, of course, the English weren't very happy about that. So they sent the army in. And, and, and of course, there was the uprising where they went up to London. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, that's a story in itself. That's fascinating. It's like, they, they you know, I, mean, I don't know. All I know is what I've read, but they were quite naive in a way because they they were like a thousand years too soon for what they were doing. They were trying to... Reach an understanding with this royal, the royals in London, to sort of say, "Oh well, you no, know, we just want you know, like a peaceful protest, but like a thousand years too soon." I mean, even now, you you know, the stuff that's going on in Trafalgar Square and that, um it's still not perfect. No. but um, anyway, what happened was during the night they were t- they were on Blackheath. Do you know Blackheath, uh, south of London? Mm. The, the Cornish were camped on Blackheath. Sort of overlooking the city, and word came to them from friendly local people that you know you better shift because the army are coming, and the the English sent out a full on army, like which at the time was like one of the most powerful in the world, yeah, to attack these ordinary people that had just gone up there because they were passionate about saving their religion and all the rest of it, and they basically they. And most of them, I think, just decided to to run for it, and they were sheltered by local people. A lot of local people did look after them. Um, you know, didn't didn't have any time for the royals, and um, but they they hunted them down all the way back to Cornwall, and that's where that grave site comes in, right. because that's possibly a place where they caught a load. Right. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, like persecution on a sort of Second World War German scale, you know.
1: Yeah. I mean, so, uh, yeah, this is something that really interests me, is the sort of hidden history or alternate history. Yeah. Like, like you were talking about Joseph Arimathea or, or Jesus coming to Cornwall. Uh-huh. Things that the mainstream history books just disregard whatsoever. Uh, but they're just so intriguing, aren't they? And, you know, if you look at the New Testament, Jesus is born, then zip, nothing for near enough 30 years. What was he doing? (laughs) And there's all sorts of alternate theories. Yeah, so where was he? There's theories that he went to to Alexandria, and that's where he learned Uh about the mysteries and esotericism, and that's where he trained to become a preacher. Or, you know, you get the theories that he he travelled with his uncle to Cornwall. Yeah, I,
3: all... I, I definitely believe both. Really, I think definitely. Have you have you ever heard of an American folk singer called John Prine? No. Yeah,
5: John Prine. Yeah.
3: Yeah, he's really cool. He, he died actually he died, didn't he, a few months ago. Mm. Um, very, very good. Just L- a really nice guy and writes amazing songs. Um, just really funny, like dry sort of humour, mm. and also he's got quite sentimental in places. But he's really good at it you know it's just wonderful songs um but he wrote a song called jesus the missing years <laughs> which is well worth a listen because he, he sort of jokes about it he sort of says that he you know hung out in paris with a few girls and and then and then he met some guy who was who was into something and he got in with him and then he yeah. you know and he sort of just tells this silly story of where he was and yeah it, it's it's just very funny
1: yeah yeah it's very intriguing i've just started a book um it was the one that dan brown ripped off for the da vinci code um by two, oh, yeah. two english authors lynn picknett and uh clive something but I, mm. i've just started but i just find it so intriguing that people are going back and try sort of try and trace trace these different sort of um myths and try and try and foot them in reality and it just gives you something to think about I mean, like the yeah, Mary Magdalene yeah. one is is another one because there's uh-huh. stories of her moving to France after the crucifixion, isn't there? Yes, yeah. To so near yeah, Mar- right, Marseille, yeah. I think. I think near Marseille. Well, she was connected to Britain, Brittany as well, right?
3: Um, I'm not quite sure where in Brittany. Yeah, I'm not sure. It could have been Roscoff, somewhere like that. But she's definitely got connections. There's local legends around there.
1: Yes, there's all these there's hmm. festivals. For for Mary Magdalene and they have yeah. relics, don't they? There's a, there's a town. That's right, yeah. I can't remember the name of the town in France, but they have a, um, a festival every year, and they have. I mean, it's I think well, it's a fake, but it's meant to be the skull of Mary <laughs> yeah, yeah. Magdalene, and they parade it around the, yeah, around yeah. the square. So there's definitely a definite connection. Oh, I think like,
3: yeah, that is the one you. Were, I think you you mentioned Marseille, didn't you? I think it was down that way. I think, I think it, it was, was further south that they did that.
1: Yeah. yeah. I just find it so intriguing, you know. Mm. And uh, Yeah, hidden history is the best, really. Well, you talk about uh, history being written by the, the victor before, and just yeah. look at the Gospels. You know, we have the four Gospels, mm-hmm. with which, you know, don't agree on certain things. But then they find the Nagamadi texts and all these Gnostic stuff and the yeah. Gospel of Philip saying, you know, Jesus was knocking off Mary Magdalene, and then she went to France <laughs> after the crucifixion. It's like, well, all this stuff was was heresy. Yeah. It was, it was uh-huh. foot down on it. You can't, you know. Yeah. Well, it's like you know, I, I grew up in um,
3: Church of England because I was um, I was I was actually a choir boy, believe it or not. I was a head head chorister <laughs> and um, used to sing solos in Guildford Cathedral, oh. like just because every now and again our village would have to go and I think when when they were on holiday or something. And at Christmas time, particularly, I to go and sing these carols. So, I mean, I had a an upbringing in the church. And my best mate, um, who I still know, his father was the local vicar. And, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of stuff since those days about the church and people putting them down and all this. But I can only say that, you know, I actually had a really good upbringing and made a lot of good friends you know, I, I had friends across the board. I had friends who were – I lived in this village near Guildford, which had a mixture of um, – I was, I was on a council estate, and but it was a really nice one. It was like the best council estate in the country. <laughs> so I was quite pampered, really, because we, we had countryside around us, like four miles behind our garden, wow. four miles of open countryside, you know, like hills, trees, rivers. Um. But, so yeah, I, the, the whole thing with the C of E is like my experience was really good because they weren't like a pushy religion. They weren't. They just told you these these stories for like to teach you how to, you know, to do the right thing, sort of basically in given circumstances. And you know, I mean, when they were doing the sermons in those days, when we were kids, we were just doing the old f- finger puppet things in the shadows, and you know. But um, as we got older, I actually became quite interesting. Yeah. But there was a there was a blend of people in the village of like these posh people who and I had sort of foot in both camps. Because I was in the church, I knew a lot of these people. And my people who were like council house people, and some of them were quite sort of tough old sort of country families. Um and and some weird, weird things happened. It's like it always makes me laugh when I hear these stories, you know, and, and you're, you're Northerners, you're Northerners, but there's there's a sort of attitude that the self is soft and it's like, nope, nope. <laughs> I mean, I'll give you an example. like Even when I was a kid, my one of my mates who was in this posh camp, you know, he was um, in the posh part of the village, he tried to come up to see me. He knew I lived on this estate and he tried to come up and see me on his bike. He had a brand-new derailleur racing bike, you know, and uh, <laughs> which we couldn't afford. And he got to the bottom of the road, and some local lads who lived on my street basically didn't like a look at him. And they said to him, oh, you yeah, know, where are you going? So he said, so I'm going to see my mate. And he said, well, you can't come up here. You don't belong here. And it was like, <laughs> they, they beat him up. They wouldn't let him up the street. Because they didn't believe that he was my mate, so it's like you know we had little pockets of, uh, <laughs> and and they they all had because I was in the country, they they were I mean I was the only one who wasn't actually but they all had weapons they all had rifles, and because they would be out in the fields shooting everything that moved, yeah, um, you know this was the sixties. In fact, I actually got shot when I was um how old was i i don't know probably 10 or 11 and do you want to hear a funny story yeah
1: (laughs) 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 at least we know you made it
3: (laughs) yeah it is funny it is quite funny so i i was over so behind where we lived there was as i say about four miles of countryside and it was like woods and a river and so on i was over there one day uh, it was like ten or eleven, and I was with this girl who was in my class at school, and, and possibly one of my sisters—I'm not sure, can't remember now—but we were behind this bush, just playing around in this edge of this field. And all of a sudden, we'd, we'd seen this guy up on an embankment by the railway line, and we sort of knew, we knew who he was as well. We, he was an older lad. He was like f- probably five, six years older than me, maybe more. And all of a sudden, there was a. He had his air rifle with him, actually. And all of a sudden, there was a right really close to me. And next thing I know, I've been hit on my ass by a pellet, and it's. It, I can tell you, it stings. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew, I knew, I knew he did it. I knew it was him. But anyway, it it was more like it was. It hurt a bit, you know. It was a bit. It stung a bit. But it wasn't a big deal, you know. It's just like I thought it's quite funny, really. Mm. But um, we went home, and as I say, I was only a young lad. Went home, and my mother, I think my sister, blapped and said, Oh, Pete, there's this guy, Pete Fish. Oh, Pete Fish shot him, you know. So she was furious. You know, I wasn't really, I thought it was funny, like, but she thought she was really, really cross about this. But next thing we know, this, this guy, and I still know him as well. He comes down to my door, and he knocks the door, and I, I'm upstairs at home. And I can hear him saying um, to my mum, "Oh, Mrs Wyatt, I've I've come to apologise for shooting your son.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, and my mum was, like, very, very defensive, like of formidable sort of, like, no-one messed with her, you know. And she was like... <laughs> She was really tearing him off one, you know. And um, then she said, and I was embarrassed by this, you know. And then she said, Mark, come downstairs, come downstairs. I was like, what? What do you want? Just come down here. And I, so I had to go down there. And she said, because she'd already seen the damage, it was like a big red well, right, on my cheek. <laughs> And she said, "Show him." Well, I don't want to show him, you know. He said, "Show him, show him." So, oh, oh God, so I had to show him where the pellet had hit me, right? So, and I, I was embarrassed. Obviously, he was trying not to laugh. But he was trying to look sort of, um, you know, suitably like, "Oh, I'm really sorry. This is why," I, you know. And I could see him smirking. He was just trying not to laugh. And he, off he went, and he, he, he was just trying to hold it back, just trying not to laugh. But from that moment, and that was like 1969, 70, something like that, from that moment on, because when I, within about uh, five, six years, maybe a bit more, I'd start seeing him down a local pub at the end of the road. And because we, we knew each other, you know, we'd lived in the same street, and he loved to, at some point in the evening, come over to me on a Friday night or whatever, when everyone's drinking heavily and, you know, it was our local. He would come over and say, oh, Hello, Mark, how's your bum? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, he would occasionally see me in town too. And, of course, people who weren't in on it uh-huh. would assume there was something a bit weird about that, you know. <laughs> but, ev- but a sort of hardcore of us all knew what it was, obviously but it still goes on to this day (laughs) and um, yeah it's like the longest range ever so like I last time I saw him was about I think a year ago or so and um, yeah I'm trying to think where I saw him but it would have been in a pub somewhere and he basically sort of I just know as soon as I see him he's going to ask me (laughs) have I recovered yet you know does it still sting
1: you know (laughs) Oh, <laughs> you know, oh, it's funny you mentioned um, about us being Northerners before, yeah. and uh, I was thinking, just remind you know, when I was talking about identity. I think that yeah. might be like up there, you know. I think that might yeah. be part of our identity. I think for most Northerners,
3: well, when mm. I lived in the Northeast, which is obviously a bit higher up than you, <laughs>
1: yeah. they used to they used to call you lot Southerners. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the Londoners, Northerners, anyone north at Watford Gap, isn't it? Yeah, well, well when I lived
3: in, um, I lived in Newcastle, well, near Newcastle, in a place called, uh, well, the BT announcer called it Prudhoe, <laughs> but the locals called it Pruda, yeah. <laughs> um, which means proud heights. It was a the Normans built a castle there. Right. Um, anyway, it's another story. So. I had this mate, I still got this mate up there who's a true Geordie. And, oh my God, the stories I could tell you about him and the the timeline, this is the 90s when I was up there. And, okay, so there was this, he had a brother who was also obviously a Geordie. And his brother went off on holiday and he had a free season ticket um, going begging for like a couple of weeks. And he said, oh, your mate, me, to his brother, he said, you know, take your mate along to St. James's Park, because you know, like, it was difficult to get in in the 90s because they were having this really wonderful run. That's
1: right.
3: Um, the, the entertainers, oh, I remember Andy Cole and Peter Beardsley. Yeah. And
1: Kevin Keegan will manager.
3: Oh yeah, Keegan was brilliant, absolutely brilliant.
1: I'd love so, it um, if we
3: beat them. I'd love it. <laughs> I'd love it, I'd love it if we beat them. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, he took me along I think, yeah, the first time I went along St. James's Park, and I fe- obviously I felt a bit out of place being a southerner in St. James's Park with the Geordies. And my mate Ian, obviously a Geordie, I'm following him in through the turnstiles, and it's absolutely packed. They, they were playing Notts County and um, in a League Cup or something. And I tried to, when you get to a turnstiles, the guy on the turnstiles asked me a question, but I didn't understand what he said because I'm a Southerner and he's a Geordie and I, I was new to it. I hadn't been up there that long, I think.
1: This is to stop um, fans going in the wrong end, isn't it? I remember this, security yeah, questions.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, he, well, The question he asked me, I, I honestly didn't understand a word he was saying because it was like another language to me. Yeah. And and he spoke very quickly. And I thought, oh God. so I, I said, I'll, Sorry, pardon. I didn't hear you. Hoping I'd catch it the second time round because I couldn't. I still didn't get it, and he was getting crosser and crosser. And the guys behind me, who I didn't know, were like, "Come on, mate, get out the bloody way!" or whatever, you know. And um, then, luckily, my mate who was ahead of me realised I wasn't behind him anymore, and he turned round and he looked through the crowd to see me still stood, stood there having this discussion with this bloke I couldn't understand and he realised there was a problem and he sort of came back through the crowd and and because I mean part of the problem I didn't mention was that there was a little picture on the card and it didn't look anything like me <laughs> you know I mean at the time I would really short hair and you know I was really clean shaven and, and this picture his brother was this hairy beast uh, like <laughs> Fourth stone heavier than me, or something, you know. Yeah. So, and he, my mate comes back and he said, You know, what are, what are you playing at? What's going on? Because he, he didn't really understand. I like, didn't understand his, you know, one of his acquaintances, not acquaintances, but you know, local. Um, And then basically he, he said to this guy, He said, Oh, you'll have to forgive my mate. He said, I can't do the accent. It's like, You'll have to forgive my mate, like, he's a bit <laughs> special. or something like that and I thought oh thanks a lot you know but it was literally I couldn't understand a word he was saying and this happened a few times when I was in the north uh, like the far north Um, but eventually you get used to it you sort of they they speak a lot quicker than we do Um, yeah I'd I'd probably have
1: problems now if I was up there again now because I've sort of got out of practice it's a weird thing about this country, isn't it? I, considering yeah. how, what, how, you know, geographically it's only a small country, but you've got so many different yeah. accents mm. and dialects. Yeah, like, is. we always talk about the barm. You know, mm. there's the barm cake, the uh, yeah, bread roll. Yeah. Everyone, you know, if you travel 50 yeah. miles, there's a different name for the same thing. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, yeah. You know, barm cake, bread roll, bap. bap. Oh, baps,
3: yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah, sad. there was a there was a down in Cornwall somewhere. There was a one of these roadside um, food trucks, and it was
1: called Nice Paps. <laughs> we're going back to Knockers again.
5: <laughs> yeah, we're we're heading heading back, back
1: to Knockers. Knock <laughs> hey, dear. Hey, well, on on that note, Mark, we're rocking up yeah. on time already. Yeah, Are we. Yeah, yeah. I know. Uh... We're gonna have to wrap this up. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah, uh, that was great. Cheers, mate. Nice to talk with you.
3: And you, brilliant. Yeah, great. So, nice. Sorry, I didn't let you get a word in.
1: And that's that's perfect. <laughs> that's kind of kind of the idea, Mark. Yeah, yeah
3: I'm, I'm, I'm very shy in retiring.
1: <laughs> uh, where's the where's the best place for people to follow you? Um,
3: yeah, I, I don't really. Have, I don't have a website anymore. I stopped doing that some time ago. Really. Um, they can contact me by email if anyone wants to. I don't doubt that they'd want to, really. Um, my, my books are on Amazon.
1: Yes, um, the, links okay. will, the links will be in the show notes for... Um, Thank you, I appreciate that. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, the, re- the reviews, are, you know, I can't, I can't sit here and brag about the books. It's, I could do, but I won't. It's, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, if you look at the reviews the reviews are fair unless unless anyone's been on there recently and slagged me off I don't know but they they're pretty good I've got some good reviews on there uh, which I'm quite pleased to have um the the books are like they're not just another list of ghost stories and ufo stories They're they're all you know they're all genuine witness experiences some of them are my own and they are I've sort of tried to tie in a lot of history um, so they're not just um, another random list of supernatural stories. There is a sort of theme running through them. Yeah.
1: And, and there's, there's a stories. lot of
3: culture in it as well. There's a lot of culture, a lot of history.
1: A lot of stories um, you've collected yourself with, with, in your time down there, aren't we?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I actually experienced some weird things. Um, yeah. If we had more time, I'd tell you, but I, I lived in a property in Beaud um well, it, it's a long story. But I ended up in this place, like living in this place as a temporary measure, and with about uh, eight or nine, sort of younger, well, sort of your age, probably. Yeah, um, twenty I'm twenty-five. Guessing, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no I But they're all they're all young lads, you know, sort of compared to me, and a few young women, and basically. I'd start, start hearing all these stories about this ghost in this house and had I seen it, yeah, and so on. And then they, they didn't even know at the time that I was writing about this sort of stuff or I was interested in it. So I sort of landed in the right place at the right time. Mm. And it was a surfer who he only died in 2012 and he'd been seen many times by different people around the house like in more recent years. Um, and I got to interview all these people and it was, it was just an amazing house. It's a surfing community. So, and everybody, everyone there, either surfs or plays rugby.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, that's just the way it is in Cornwall. Yeah. Um, and basically this, I actually possibly, I mean, I couldn't swear to it, but I believe I saw the guy myself. And I definitely experienced the feeling that he was around, but I think I actually saw him as well. He had a way of just popping up and sort of letting himself be known. Um, uh, I mean, people saw him in a, in a nearby lane, a uh, bloke in a van who, who had actually, you know, these were his friends. These were actually his friends who knew him. I didn't know him. And they actually saw him after he died and they swear to it. Um, so, yeah, it's it, just that story alone is just its amazing. And oh, Yeah, we didn't just even... Way, sorry.
1: We've not even done any spooky stories, Mark. I know, you're I know. Gonna have, you're going to <laughs> you're gonna have to come back. You're going to have to come back further down the line. Yeah.
3: Well, I'll, I'll be happy to come back. It was, it was fun. It was fun. Oh, it'd be
1: great. Great cool. to yeah. be on again. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, just, we'll have to wrap up. Just uh, hang on the line for us, Mark, while we play ourselves okay. out. Will mm-hmm. and we'll catch on the flip side thank you
3: thanks for having me on <laughs>
1: take care see you in a minute <laughs> right then we're back
2: the dwarf the cripple and the mother of madness
1: that was chat with Mark Anthony Wyatt Yeah, how cool was that I really enjoyed that it was good. Yeah, it's, nice,
2: think... it's nice to get some feedback about our uh, intros as well. Mark thinks it was really smooth this week, so yes. <laughs> um, producers, please let us know if have any further notes. Yeah, it's good. Yep. I could listen to them stories for hours. Oh, yeah, wow. I, I never, and I forgot to ask him about what the what weird stuff happened on top of that granite rock he was sat on. Yeah. He never said, did he?
1: Oh, he teased us. We'll have to have that, he now. did. Save it till next time. Yeah, yeah. Goodbye. Hopefully, we'll uh, we'll we'll uh, check in with Mark further down the line, and do an
5: episode so. live from Padstow. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: right then, I think you. Uh, oh yeah, so his books. Check out the uh, link in the show yep. notes for the uh, the Spirit of Cornwall volumes one and two. I'll put the links, the Amazon links, in the show notes. So, uh, yeah, check that shit out. Have you got your feather duster ready? housekeeping
0: yeah. housekeeping housekeeping
1: housekeeping i'm a blind man housekeeping what do we need for housekeeping become a producer and support the show there are yeah, multiple how, ways how can you do it ben housekeeping send us some shit <laughs> itunes reviews we want yeah, iTunes reviews, 5 uh, stars. Yeah, rating reviewers, wherever you're listening. Subscribe to the yeah. YouTube channel.
5: Yeah. Um, do, we, um, do we accept Yelp reviews? Are they yeah. still a thing? I think we'll yeah. take them. Two Yelp reviews for every iTunes review, I think, is the, the going rate. Um, check out the Amish loot chest
2: and buy yourself a Wicked Hoodie.
1: Yeah, all proceeds from the merch store and donations are going to St. Catherine's Hospice for the month of... Whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. ...for the month of December.
2: From the merchandise as well? Yeah. That's our main source of
1: income. I can stand it for a month. It's fine. Have we got a totaliser? No. How else can you become a producer? (laughs) Send us news clips um video clips media news articles memes for instagram contribute to the show give us content yes. and you will be credited in the show notes you can put it on your linkedin looks nice on your linkedin producer of armish yeah. exhibition episode 162
2: how do you become an executive producer
1: that requires further discussion off air because i um, have the answer oh. but it requires discussion <laughs> oh right okay oh blimey uh what's the number one way to become a producer
2: Toss it's us a fucking day. coin. Donate a kidney. Toss
0: a coin <laughs> to your
6: witcher, oh valley of plenty, oh valley of plenty. Oh. I've been coming to terms with the fact that toss I'm a blind,
1: toss a blind man. To your witcher, oh toss us a coin. Um, go to the com. find the um, PayPal button and, and toss us a coin. And again, for the month of December, that's going to St. Catherine's Hospice, a worthy cause. Mm. Uh, so, you know, get in the habit... December, and then you know, just keep it going in January. (laughs) Self
5: a direct debit, it's easy, forget about it.
1: Yeah, so, um, better thank the producers, I'm now for episode 162. Um, this is a first because you know who the first producer on the list is, a lady, Mark Anthony Wyatt. Oh, I think this is better. It's not, he's not the first, actually, Graham. From Grey America has been a producer as well. Well, I think this is yeah. the first time we've had a guest be a guest and producer in the same week. Because might be yeah. sending us some videos and stuff. So uh, who's on the list? We've got Mark Anthony Wyatt, Graham Dunlop from the Grey America show, Richard Mouncy, Gav Scott, Tambrister Twenty Twenty, Full Metal Keto as Fuck, Panhead, <laughs> Raymond Jet Squad, and Anonymous. Thanks for your support for another week. You're literally
7: the, the best. Good. The best mate. <laughs> I think you're hitting, hitting the point, Phil,
0: that. They are. Yeah. So. amazing. Uh, <clears throat>
6: uh. And their love. I've been coming to terms with the fact that. I'm a blind man.
7: The dwarfs, the crabs, the grape, the homophobe, the winds, the asna, the
6: crap up, the number 11, the blind man, the fallen on the horizon,
0: the, girl, <laughs> the mother of
7: the from hell. I don't get it, I never will. Oh,
0: they should have run. Look at them now.
1: Slips a bit oh. of the slips a bit of the drifter in there, yeah. So uh, thanks for your support for another week. It's been great. We've had loads of stuff. C- we can't. I can't use it all. There's that much, so I have to uh, oh. ration ration it down.
6: Yeah. Woo! Look at them fall. <laughs> all right! All right! All right! Half bring a sword.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, right. What do we move on to? Um,
2: Covid
5: nineteen news. Do, do, do. Have you got the uh, the breaking news?
1: COVID nineteen news. Gosh! Put on your fucking muzzle if you go to the shop. The magic vaccine. A big fat shot in the ass from hell. Oh!
0: You yeah. know it's just you know super painful. Like a judgment day in and intimidating. more lives this year than any
6: other year for the past hundred years. Two million people have die. This is such a crock of shit. Yes, yes.
7: bickering. Who the fuck's that? Yeah, me.
1: What's the breaking COVID nineteen news, Irish Ben? Rudy Giuliani has tested positive
5: for COVID nineteen. All right. Is that it? So ah. Famous famous um, uh,
1: oh, I thought so there you've... was gonna be some sort of world changing Yeah societies across the world have risen up and said enough <laughs> of this fucking madness. Yeah, it's just some some shit. Well, unless you've been living under a rock this week, the big news is the Pfizer vaccine, isn't it? Yeah. The Pfizer vaccine has been approved by the is it the MHRA or the M R H A? MHRA, medicines and Health
5: Regulatory Authority.
1: Yes, um, the first Western country to approve a vaccine. Mm. And uh, the head of the NIH, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, National Institute Mm. for Health, and the head of the COVID Task Force in the United States, um, he went on CBS and said this.
7: Uh, Why are the Brits first?
1: You know, in
6: all fairness to so many of my UK friends, you know, they kind of ran around the corner of the, uh, of the marathon <laughs> and joined it <laughs> in the last mile. <laughs> I think that would be a good metaphor. for
1: Fucking chocolate, isn't it? You can't stop laughing all the way through it. <laughs>
6: for it, Major, because um, they really rushed through that approval. The, the, the FDA, the United States of America Food and Drug Administration, is the gold standard of regulation. They're doing it in a very careful way appropriately because if we did anything that was cutting corners and rushing, we have enough problem with people being skeptical about taking a vaccine anyway. If we had jumped over the hurdle here quickly and inappropriately to gain an extra week or a week and a half, I think that the credibility of our regulatory process would have been damaged and we would have had more people. You know, I love the Brits, they're great, they're good scientists, but they just took the data from the Pfizer company and instead of scrutinizing it really, really carefully, they said, okay, let's approve it, that's it, and they went with it. In fact, they were even rather severely criticized by their European Union counterparts who were saying, you know, that was
5: kind of a hot dog play.
1: Pretty, uh, pretty scathing, Dr Fauci, there.
5: Mm. Dog. I think he's um, he's right. The the FDA, uh, historically, always ask for raw data for, for these things, for vaccine um, approvals. You mean whereas they the don't? MHRA, whereas the <laughs> MHRA um, tend to just review the reports. I mean, it's the same data, but the FDA do seem to go into a lot more detail. And he's right. It is the gold standard of regulation in, in, in the world. So okay. So, apologise for that, didn't he, After, afterwards? Mm-hmm. So twi- let's sorry.
1: fast forward 24
6: hours later. Spoiler alert. First of all, there really has been a misunderstanding. And for <laughs> that, I, I'm sorry and I apologise for that. Uh, I do have great faith in both the scientific community and the regulatory community at the UK. And anyone who knows me and my relationship with that over literally decades know that's the case. The point that I was really trying to make, and, and I did not make it appropriately well, and that's the reason why I welcome the opportunity to get on your show and say that I do have confidence it came out wrong and that was not the way I meant it to be. In the United States, there is such a considerable amount of tension of pushing back on the credibility of the safety and of the efficacy that if if we in the United States had done it as quickly as the UK did, and that's no judgment (laughs) on the way the UK did it, and even though my statements did come across looking that way.
1: Yeah, cutting corners, being fast (laughs) and loose, not going Mm -hmm. over the road data anyway dog,
6: that if we had for example approved it yesterday or tomorrow there likely would have been pushback on an already scrutinizing society that has really um i th- this is interesting i think in some respects in the united states too much skepticism about the process
1: too much too much skepticism yeah oh, so right. just uh, just take it Interesting choice of words. Yeah, it does go on to say that it's essentially a foregone conclusion that it will pass and it, and uh, you will take it and you will be fine. By uh, the time
5: is, the majority of the people in the UK have the vaccine, it will have passed in the states as well. So it's it's it'll catch up. It's, I mean, I don't want to say it's only the over eighties and whoever's having it in the first couple of weeks that are going to be impacted by whatever the the speed. Is mm. but I suppose that that is the case, really. I mean, I, th- I think it'll be really quick. And the EMA, the European guys, they're looking at uh, December the 29th, yeah, roughly for uh, for approval. Yeah.
1: I just found it, his choice of words interesting. That they were too skeptical. I mean, I don't know. Are, are either you skeptical about the vaccine?
5: I think
2: because it's just new, yeah, because
5: it's I, a new I'm technology. Not, but... As a member of the scientific community in Great Britain, I, uh, I'm not.
1: You're not skeptical. But, you know,
5: I've I, no, but I've I've got more experience with with these things, I guess, and I don't. I do not um, begrudge anyone who is skeptical, and I, I get what you're saying that too much skepticism is a bit of a, a weird, a weird thing, like a anti scientific. Yeah, I mean, if you have any skepticism about anything i mean that's that's probably enough to be concerned about right there's no too much or too little
1: uh for anyone who who isn't skeptical such as yourself ben i've got some advice for you whatever you do don't google pfizer bribery or pfizer racketeering don't google (laughs) pfizer nigeria Don't Google Pfizer Dengue Fever. That's D-E-N-G-U-E. Don't Google that. Don't Google Pfizer Withhold Data or Pfizer Illegal Drug Trials because that won't do anything for your uh, lack of scepticism. No, I won't. Good. Good. (laughs) Best best be safe. Uh, Right, let's move on from the vaccine to uh, Health Secretary Matt Hancock. Uh, He was up in front of... What is it, uh, your girlfriend's first proper boyfriend with a car? Yeah. He was up in front of the um, Health Select Committee this week, Um, and the question of, there's been this sort of question about the terminology of following the science. Are you following the science or guided by the science? (coughs) Because following the science, Mm. the scientists aren't accountable to the electorate, it's the old mm-hmm. advisers advise ministers decide thing mm-hmm. so to be blindly and blindly following the science gives the politicians an out they can throw the mm-hmm. scientists under the bus mm-hmm. it all goes wrong so it's an important thing to sort of clarify so here's what Matt Hancock had to say to the select committee
7: oh, God. I, I always try to take the approach of being guided by the science you did say
4: follow the science a number of times
7: uh, I, I may have said it colloquially uh, but the
2: approach that I took and far more rigorously um, tried to describe was being guided by the science.
1: Anyway, what here's what he actually said. We're being very clear in following
2: the science. We've been following scientific and medical advice. We've followed the science in terms of uh, international travel. The science which said that um, which we we followed we did take scientific advice we followed the
1: science um throughout
5: we followed the science
1: yeah it's interesting there's, there's going to be a lot of book passing coming in a year or two
5: mm yeah
1: um when the full um collateral damage becomes you know you start sweeping things under the carpet and all of a sudden you have a mountain with a carpet over the top of it. And there's going to be a lot of difficult questions asked and these guys are going to try and wriggle out of everything. Yeah. And uh, the politicians are going to pin it on the scientists and the scientists are going to say, well, we we just give advice and politicians decide. <laughs> which is true. Yes. So it's going to be interesting. I don't know.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, there'll be... There'll be... Data releases, and the, the scientists are most, most likely will say the data is here for all to see. Um, so. uh,
1: the problem is, is when you get chief scientific advisor intentionally using misleading data, and if you were being charitable, you could say misleading the public. I would call it yes, lying. They're playing play the
5: politics, aren't they? They've got too close. They've flown cl- too close to the
1: sun. There was an interesting uh, interview with um with someone I can't remember who it was. With a, a politician. And he, he, he brought up, in the interview, brought up someone like Carl Hennigan, who has a different approach to... And all he could say is, well, well, he's not on SAGE. He's not on SAGE. Synecetra Gupta. Synecetra Gupta. Well, she, she's not on SAGE. So they're, they're, they're in a fucking hole, basically, and um, these scientists aren't helping themselves, and they're not going to help the scientific community as a whole... I think Shade should be completely disbanded and reconstituted. Yeah? Personally, but
5: that's another On the regular, once a month.
1: Yeah. Anyway, should we move on to another story from this week? Well, it's actually from last week, but we didn't have time to play it. Do you remember um, the miracle
7: drug, Remdesivir? I remember that. The World Health Organisation could not be any clearer in its advice today. It does not recommend the use of antiviral drug Remdesivir to treat hospitalised coronavirus patients, no matter how sick they are. The warning comes as part of the organisation's regular review into COVID-19 treatments. It says its findings indicate that the drug doesn't help improve survival rates.
1: So this is the WHO have said... uh, whoops, no, don't use remdesivir. In fact, regular listeners to this podcast will know that we we said this months ago that it doesn't improve outcomes whatsoever. But uh, money talks.
7: The World Health Organisation could not be any clearer in its advice today. It does not (laughs) recommend the use of antiviral drug remdesivir to treat hospitalised coronavirus patients, no matter how sick they are. The warning comes as part of the organisation's regular review into COVID-19 treatments. It says its findings indicate that the drug doesn't help improve survival rates or reduce the need for medical ventilation in patients with breathing difficulties. The announcement will prompt some awkward questions for health officials in the United States who just over a month ago approved the use of remdesivir for sick coronavirus patients. The maker of the drug, Gilead, had earlier applied for emergency use of Remdesivir to America's Food and Drug FDA. Administration. That application was approved, and since then, some hospitalised patients have been receiving the medicine as part of their treatment.
1: What was it, the gold standard, the FDA? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they approved it, didn't they? And three northern monkeys on a shitty podcast knew that this thing didn't work. But somehow it got emergency authorization from the FDA. Funny. Was it first used for Ebola?
5: When no. we had the the Ebola um, outbreak a couple of years ago, I don't people were worried about that. I don't That's know. when I, I think when I first heard remdesivir because
1: it's a fairly it new drug. Tamiflu.
5: Isn't it? Tamiflu was the swine flu previous uh, before the Ebola uh, pandemic.
1: It's uh, it's nineteen hundred quid for a five day course. Um, (laughs) about a week before this announcements from the WHO, the EU just did a $1 billion deal with Gilead for it. Billion, billion euros, sorry. Wow. Gets you thinking, doesn't it? Mm. That's what makes the world go round. It certainly does when it comes to pharmaceutical companies. It's just desperation, isn't it? I think people are just buying up stuff. No, it was a concerted campaign from the US media. If you if you digest a lot of US media, they were plugging this drug and plugging it and plugging it and plugging it. And that probably forced the hand of the FDA to approve it for emergency use. And um who knew that the Gilead had taken over
2: from Donald Trump's administration?
5: I've (laughs)
1: handmaidens, (laughs) next. Okay, moving on. Um, Commonly, in this section of the show, we've been going through a lot of the unintended consequences of lockdowns Mm. and uh, some of the, well, not unintended, but fucking obvious consequences of lockdowns as well. Uh, I've got a new one. I've got a new one this week, one that we haven't heard before. Um, This is from Ivor Cummins again fat emperor Mm. he was interviewing Dr Malcolm Kendrick uh last week I think it was um and they were talking about the impact of on care homes you know how how we seeded the virus into care homes sending sick people from hospital with coronavirus into care homes sort of anti-lockdown essentially (laughs) and you know they go on to say that the Swedes did it as well but at least they had the grace to admit what they'd done whereas we, we won't in this country obviously um, but this is a new one. I haven't heard this this story from Spain and the care homes.
6: And, and, and a lot of the other countries that had huge rates. the Italians, and well, one of the things that happened in, in Italy was that a lot, when they were back to lockdown, a whole number of the staff were from Eastern Europe who didn't want to get stuck, So they headed back to Romania and Hungary and these countries. And the care homes were absolutely devastating. There was one care home in Spain where all the care staff just left. And, this, and there were there were a number of the residents just starved to death. That's a direct result of lockdown. And, you know, whilst everyone's running around pretending this maybe didn't happen, but we know it happened. It, just So that's just another, if you like, thing to throw into the mix.
1: This is something yeah. we, we didn't touch on, was it? The exodus of care home staff, because we know a lot it's, of them Amer- are from Eastern Europe.
2: No, I, heard, I I didn't think about sort of like the uh, staff leaving, mm-hmm. but is, yeah, there are a lot of Eastern European staff, don't they, that, that staff these kinds of things. But I did I did remember that story being on um, on the news, on the BBC news about they come across this care home in Madrid, a huge one, and they'd gone in and there was just loads of dead people in the rooms. They couldn't figure out why. Guess. And that's, maybe that's what, what had happened, basically. All the staff just left and they died. They starved?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just so unhumane, some of the shit that's going on. And, know, you know, yeah. it's not. we're not blaming the <clears throat> care home staff. You know, the, I, I would probably do the same thing if I was, you know, if I had a work visa in a foreign country, I was just there to make money, try and improve the lives of my own family. And then I hear that there's a lockdown coming in two weeks. Which could last was, for yeah. how long? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. You know, you, your first instinct would be to go back home, wouldn't it? But um, again, it's, it's the lack of foresight.
2: I think it is, isn't it? And the, um, I think at the beginning it, it felt a lot different to what it did now, doesn't it? Once you know actually the nature of the virus or whatever.
1: Yeah. Uh, I meant to get something ready. I forgot to get it.
2: Yes.
1: Is it your Star Wars Lego advent calendar? Oh, very nice. What have you got there? What was it what was behind the door t- today? Num- number six, I think it was the Razorcrest. Now then we had a dispute before you logged on, Ben. Yeah. I believe, and I haven't Googled this, that Boba Fett's ship was called Slaver One.
5: Slave One, I think.
2: I don't I didn't wasn't disagreeing with you. I was just saying that this was called Razorcrest. Is that
5: an A-wing or a snow speeder Matt?
2: Which one? This one.
5: Yeah.
2: Um I'm not really sure what that one is, to be honest with you. It's
5: like an A-wing.
2: <sighs> Might be. i am not I don't think I've built that one correctly. It's very hard. <laughs> you don't get proper instructions.
5: What?
4: Well, I think I, think
2: I think that's the one that Mos Gideon flies.
5: Is it Mandela? Oh, yeah, I suppose you've got the razor. razor it's,
2: or something. it's a mixture, I think, because I think this must be, I think that's Luke, isn't it? Young Luke. Ah,
5: Young Luke.
2: And then I don't know who this is unless it's um that one from, I think that's the one from, uh, what's it called?
5: Green Lantern. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> um. Oscar Isaac,
1: whatever his name is in the films. Right. I've got um. Sorry, to break I've just found the thing I was looking for. I got Hello. I got sent a graphic this week, and it's from the Workplace Mental Health Institute, and it's entitled "15 Signs You May Be in, a, in a, an Abusive Relationship." Oh God! So let's see if any of these ring a bell. Number one: <laughs> stop you seeing your friends and family. <laughs> Number two, won't let you go out without permission. (laughs) Number three, tell you what to wear, like over your face. Like a fucking muzzle. Number four, monitor your phone or emails. Number five, control the finances or won't let you work. Oh. Sounds familiar. Number six. (laughs) Control what you read, watch, and say.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Number seven: monitor everything you do. Hello, track and trace app. Number eight: punish you for breaking the rules, but the rules keep changing. <laughs> mm, that sounds familiar. Oh gosh, what tier? <laughs> what tier are we in today? <laughs> Number nine: tell you it's for your own good, and that they know better. <laughs> Can you, he can't even write this shit. Number 10, don't allow you to question it. Well, uh, last time I checked, um, you aren't allowed to protest in this country in numbers more than two. Two is, isn't it? Now, Yeah, yeah, so don't allow you to question it, I think is that one. Tell you you're crazy and no one agrees with you. (laughs) You're a fucking tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist. You think Bill Gates is going to inject you with a nanochip. (laughs) oh you're crazy call your (laughs) names or shame you for being stupid or selfish now this is really insipid because they get the population to do this for them you fucking selfish prick all you have to do is wear a mask stop being so selfish I think they do it themselves to be honest with you don't they yeah but it Mm. it pervades the society gaslight you challenge your memory of events and make you doubt yourself Dismiss your opinions. And number 15, uh, play the victim. If things go wrong, it's all your fault. If you do Mm. a really good job of locking down, things will be normal by Christmas. Oh, no, it turns out that... No, some people just aren't following the rules and we're going to have to do this all over again. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. I think we're in an abusive relationship with our government... Isn't that always the case? I've got to mention when when Charlie Robinson was on, Mm.
2: that when he was talking about sort of like the state taking over the media or whatever it was, the state's influence on the media, was that changing the rules by Ofcom in that uh, um, basically only scientists are allowed to go on to mainstream news um, are allowed to sort of – have, sorry, have to kind of agree with the government's uh, line, basically. And sort of like if Channel 4 had someone on, say, for example, that Mike Eden, if they had him on, and he was saying what he was saying, they would potentially get fined for it. Um, so, they didn't. so the only exception is that guy, that cancer guy. Carol Sikora. Yeah, apparently. he's He name-checked in that Mike Eden. He said he's the only one they've allowed on
1: does that apply just to state broadcasters or
2: i don't know maybe it's all i wouldn't
1: channel have thought so news will have anyone on well channel yeah. four are, are split yeah they, it is a it
2: is a it's a it's a
1: it's, part, sorry, it's a part advertising
2: state funded thing isn't it national broadcaster, or whatever, I don't
1: know. Uh, we should say, just going back to Charlie Robinson, um, mm-hmm. his podcast, Macroaggressions, hit number one in the US iTunes charts this week. Well done, Charlie. Yeah, congratulations. Well done. I, I won't want to take credit for it, but you, <laughs> you, you, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I'm sure we
5: tipped him over <laughs> you know,
1: You know, to, you know... Two great Peace. minds of podcasters, number one in the USA and number one in the British Virgin Isles. Yeah, okay. yeah.
2: Key demographics. Where all the money is in the Virgin Isles.
1: That's a good oh, point. Oh sure. <laughs> anyway, let's get off COVID and do some happier some happier stuff. Oh good. We're in December now. And you know what that mm. means, don't you? The same Christmas. thing. It comes around get... every December. I a Christmas jingle.
5: Radio One. <laughs> say words, anything. <laughs> radio, Radio One.
2: Uh, I was just waiting for the rest. Of, waiting for the rest of the song.
1: Well, there's a controversy it's never, every... There's
2: a pregnant pause in the middle of that song. Are you, is it because she, are you not allowed to say faggot? Is that what? <sighs>
1: Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a, sc- a scandal every year, isn't there, when this song comes back um, on the radio? It's every year. Yeah, it happens every year now. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Radio, well, I know Radio 1 are playing the
5: censored version, and Radio 2, 3... Not Radio 3, you know, the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> I think they find Playing the standard version.
1: I think it's up to the DJs on Radio 2. I think they can play whichever they like. The sanitized version or the original.
2: I thought Faggot was unless you're talking about those little <laughs> sausage things. So, um, a, term of a, swear a, word.
1: a term of Bundle a fetchment. <laughs> a, <term laughs> a queer of... little fag. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is on building sites. It's a term of a fetchment. You know? Yeah, probably. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. Where do you stand on it? Do, do you censor it or not? Um, <sighs>
2: no. I well, I in, I thought I would probably thought it would be censored pre watershed because we have watershed, don't we? Here in the
1: before nine after nine o'clock you can swear, but before you can't. Yeah, you don't want to be dropping kids off at the playground and one of them's going, "Come on, here, you lousy faggot!" <laughs> yeah, basically, you scumbag and lazy faggot yeah. <laughs> cheap
5: slut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Oh um, I can, yeah, I, I can see, I can see an argument for that to do it pre, yeah, pre, but
4: then
2: afterwards, no, yeah, but then like radio, f- which one do I listen to? Radio Four, they swear in the day, they say shit and bitch yeah. quite often in the dramas. The in the, the day is filth. Yeah, sometimes they say shit and f-
5: and faggot. I've heard f-bombs <laughs> in the day on Radio Four. Really? Yeah, Yeah, in dramas. They have different rules, don't they, apparently, for Radio 4? Mm.
1: Mm. Young kids don't listen to it, I guess.
5: Yeah, only intellectuals that can handle that kind of profanity.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Listening to What's-His-Face, he used to do Dragon's Den on... Drive time, whatever it's called. Do the intro. Uh, Evan Davies. Evan. Hi, my name's. um, uh, Oh, what's my name? Evan. And it's time for. Time to drive. No, drive time.
0: He's awful.
1: Spit it out, you lousy faggot. (laughs) Oh. Oh, anyway. um, Eamon and Ruth are leaving this morning. Oh, and um, you know, Eamon, oh. I love it. I love Eamon.
2: Did well. I you well? Guess who won the uh, propaganda war then? In that in that particular battle.
1: Yeah, well, you can't beat coming out, can you? No, exactly. It's the, it's, a, it's a nuke. Yeah, it's like a nuclear bomb, isn't it? Uh, how come it didn't? The
2: only thing it doesn't work against is
1: uh,
0: John child
7: Austin. sex. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the old... uh, A spacey. The the spacey effects, yeah. Yeah, it's spacey (laughs) defence. It's like a chess move, isn't it? It's come out. The Queen's Gambit. (laughs) (laughs) Works on many levels, that one.
7: It does!
1: (laughs) I'm going to miss Eamon, because he's always putting his foot in it. And uh, there was no exception this week. He was talking to... um, Ruth Jones from Gavin and Stacey. Oh yeah, Uh, yeah. He just, I think he just wants to finger her basically. (laughs) Oh no!
6: Good fortune of Gavin and Stacey if there was a Christmas special uh, again, like last week, last last year, whatever. But um, we don't know that and much more to ask Ruth Jones about her book, which we're. What do you do with a book? Do you finger
5: through a book? Flick flick through. We're we're flicking through your book. We're flicking through your book. Ruth, Keep flicking. I will do. Listen, I'll we're gonna flick sorry, a bit
4: Ruth. more, we'll be back with you right after this.
1: just see the producer in the air is going, Ruth, shut him up, Ruth, <laughs> shut him up. Got a commercial Brilliant. Oh man. We're fingering we're finger we're finger fucking We're flicking <laughs> through <laughs> your f- fucking finger and you.
2: you're, you're in your fat, you fucker. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Get away from her, you bitch. Get away from her, you bitch. Anyway, moving on, I think this might be my favourite story of the year so far. Ooh. A local election in Namibia has caught the attention of the world. Why? A man named Adolf Hitler has won a sweeping majority. But the world does not have any reason
6: to fear him. Unlike his namesake, Adolf Hitler from Namibia has
1: no plans for world domination. So a guy call Adolf Hitler. It's a relief. <laughs> it is a relief, yeah. He's won yeah. a, a, sleepy, a sweeping majority, Adolf. He's going to create the Fourth Reich in Namibia. Let's find out. Let's hear more about him.
4: This man probably has the worst name that one could ask for. But Adolf Hitler Unona is not a Nazi, neither is he German, or in any way related to the real Hitler, the notorious dictator who ruled over Germany till 1945. So who is Adolf Hitler Unona? He is a newly elected councillor in Namibia. Unona won the election with 85% of the vote and won space in leading international publications across the world. It's a little too late for Adolf Hitler Unna to change his name. He's 54, and he does have a sense of humor about his situation. Speaking to a German newspaper, he said, It doesn't mean that I'm striving for world domination. My father named me after this man. He probably doesn't understand what Adolf Hitler stood for. He
1: doesn't know. It's a bit random, isn't it, to pick Adolf Hitler without knowing who the guy was. <laughs> mm. Unless it's like hidden history.
2: And the Russians didn't shoot him. Or he wasn't he didn't shoot himself, sorry. The oh, Russians you... didn't burn him. I'm trying. And he went to Namibia.
1: You know, I've been trying to get Gerard Williams on the podcast. He's a a Nazi hunter.
2: Oh, right. Okay. who yeah. was
1: tracing because you know the evidence for his death, Hitler's death is fucking shaky the Russian yeah. evidence for it. And, you know, mm. in fact, that Al Pacino, uh, oh, that show on Amazon <laughs> Prime, um, yeah. that was based on the same thing. I only watched the first season. It was a bit gash. Mm. But, um, but least, Nat- they, they got them, didn't they, in the 60s and the 70s? Yeah, not since escaping to South America, Argentina. Yeah. It's, it's Argentina well-known. was a big place, wasn't it? In Chile, I um, think. The book is called Grey Wolf, Gerard Williams' mm. book. Uh, and right. you know, it's posited the theory that Hitler actually got away on a U-boat. Oh, I've heard this story, Ali. Yeah, and made it to South America. There was a TV mm. show on it uh, really? that Gerard was in, like ten, ten years ago, maybe. Oh, right, okay. So uh, it was looking promising, and then uh, radio silence. So I'd, I'd love to talk to him about that stuff. Oh, did he listen to the podcast? That's probably what it is. <laughs> yeah. That's usually what happens, isn't it? <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> How are we going to get around this? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, um, what's the most embarrassing thing to buy from a shop? Um, The Daily Mail. Guardian. Uh, Ball gag. Ball gag. Um, Ball gag. Gimp mask. Um, Condoms was one I remember from uh, my youth. A jazz (laughs) mug.
0: Um,
2: prostate stimulator
1: yeah I'd order that online maybe (laughs) I thought we
2: were talking pre-internet what about
1: a solitary cucumber (laughs) well that's fine well if you have any um, you know worries about purchasing a solitary cucumber I have a tip here from one of our Antipodean friends which was sent by Gav Scott (laughs) just got back from the shops right
2: and I had to go up there and I had to get one cucumber so I thought oh, fuck this is a bit sus so um I bought a big tub of lube to go with it so the lady at the counter didn't think I was a fucking vegan
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, good. good good one good sus good <laughs> fucking vegan there's something about the Australian accent isn't there it's brilliant I love it yeah it's close. Yeah, I wonder how it... Because, you know, they're all sort of ex-convicts, aren't they? So I wonder, I wonder how it developed, the Australian accent. Probably like jail
2: talk, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, I would think so, yeah. Something <laughs> like that. We, need to, we haven't had an Australian on. No. We've had Americans, Canadians, um, Polish. <laughs> uh, we Three nationalities. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Austrian? Rudolf? Yeah, uh, Austrian, yeah. Um, um south oh, dutch
2: dutch you had a dutch witch didn't we yeah
1: georgia van arald yeah. yeah dutch heritage i think it's from england whatever yeah all right fine <laughs> so did Amsterdam. so yeah we need to track down an australian to get on the show don't we yeah i yeah um, it's
2: a bit of a t- bit of a time issue there though
1: so. how far ahead are they
2: it depends where it's you are, don't it?
1: Little
5: it's that 23. big. It's, isn't it twenty three hours? No. Oh that's perfect. That's fine, it's an hour behind. No, there's tw- it's twelve, isn't it? Twelve. I think they're opposites, so right. if we do it at eight, it'll be eight AM for them. That's fine. Right. Should be fine.
1: Yeah, that's fine. We uh we forgot to wish our American listeners a happy Thanksgiving last week. Oh, fucking
4: <laughs> kick out the English.
1: You know what happens immediately after Thanksgiving, don't you? Uh, Black Friday,
4: is it? Mr. President, it's an honor to have you on the line with us today. What happened over your Thanksgiving? And what
0: happened, dumps. They call them dumps, big, massive dumps. I was called by the biggest people. Congratulations, sir. You watched the the biggest dumps uh, in Michigan and Pennsylvania and uh, uh, all over, Uh, silver, and then they did dumps they call them dumps big massive dumps and i'm sure you felt that way
2: oh it's can a, a producer uh why i said no video didn't I? yeah it was nope. in, the, in the
5: chat nope uh, too late matt
1: no Looks i clicked sick. on your on your thing and it said video not available oh, oh. so i found that compilation maybe next oh. week maybe next <laughs> week I can be being producer Damn it. Uh, do, you want to, do you want to add anything before we go? No, don't think so.
2: Nearly Christmas. Have you, Have you? has everyone bought the Secret Santa
5: gifts? I've got a bit of mine.
1: A bit. Right. No, not even looked. Too busy.
2: I've ordered um, some things, but one thing is yet to come. Some other things
1: have come. Oh, you know, I was just going to send it directly to the recipient. Yeah, I thought about that, and then I forgot.
2: <laughs> and, then in, and then it'd come like in three different packages as well.
1: Okay. Well, that just that adds to the incitement. Uh, incitement? The
2: incitement. Yeah. The incitement is <laughs> <coming to Christmas. laughs> How would you know not to open it, though? That's the thing.
1: Because it would be addressed to Armish Phil.
2: Yeah. Oh. Yes, that would be, yes, that would be a good, that was good thinking. Yeah. God damn it. Oh, well, never mind.
1: Okay, so, I don't know, should we fuck off? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
5: Who's on next week?
1: TJ Branham, the author of The Lockwood Code. Excellent. Oh, this book, the book. Yeah, the 19th century (laughs) author, Ingersoll (laughs) Lockwood who wrote about Donald Trump and the death of George Floyd and uh, BLM yeah. Yeah. Ah! it's going to be weird yeah check that out you fuckers come back next week <laughs> yeah leave some reviews and
2: donate to St. Catherine's Hospice and buy things
1: yeah build back better <laughs> yeah. Wakanda forever yeah Epstein didn't kill himself sayonara we'll see you next Ta-da. week <laughs> I he
0: Thank you. This may be the most important speech I've ever made. Well, it's about time! It was a massive dump, and to this day everyone's trying to figure out Where did it come from? Massive dump, wow. in the Senate. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Massive dump, and to this day everyone's trying to figure out Where did it come from? Massive dump, wow. But I went from leading by a lot to losing my a little. We used to have what was called election day. Now we have election days, weeks and months. What? Lots of bad things happened. What can I say? Wow. It was a massive dump. Get Our country cannot live with this election. Right now, we're worried about the present and what went on with an election that we won without question. In Pennsylvania, large amounts of dump all over the country. Dump. Nevada and California said Dump. Right here in Washington. It was a massive dump. And to this day, everyone's trying to figure out where did it come from? Massive dump. Wow. In the Senate. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Massive dump. And to this day, everyone's trying to figure out where did it come from? Massive dump. Wow. But I went from leading by a lie to losing my own. So many got ballots, they didn't even know what they were for. And again, so many received more than one ballot, in some cases more than two ballots. What? If you were a Democrat, we're going to fix up your ballot, make sure it's perfect. If you are a Republican, don't even talk about it. Can you believe this? The hardest thing I have to do is dump When they're irregular, Dump. Let's go on to the next dump. It's because they know they are hiding. They massive dump. And to this day, everyone's trying to figure out where did it come from. Massive dump. Wow. In the Senate. And this is just the tip of the iceberg.